Spurs like Martin I mean this is a third place team in the Bundesliga I mean this is a very very good result for Spurs any win is a good win he's like what are you talking about mate this is a Wolfsburger <laughs> in Austria this is not Wolfsburg OTB AM live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball You are very welcome along to the Sunday Paper Review. We are going to be taking a look at the back pages across all the newspapers with Colm Keyes from the Irish Independent and with Gavin Cooney from the 42. In a moment, let's take a look at what has made the back pages today, starting with the Sun. Um, we've got the juxtaposition here of Erling Haaland and also Liverpool after scoring nine goals and equaling the Premier League record in their game against Bournemouth yesterday. A tough day for the Republic of Ireland goalkeeper Mark Travers, though little he could do about the chances. Perhaps the biggest surprise at Anfield was that most Salah was not involved in any of the nine goals. Bad news if you had him in fantasy football yesterday. Also, they've got in on the back page about Eamon Murray, who has stepped down after his six years with the Mead Ladies football team. Uh, quite a remarkable medal collection and CV as manager that he put together as well, winning titles in three different divisions in the Ladies National Football League, uh, winning the All-Ireland Intermediate Championship and then back-to-back senior titles. Uh, but after many of his management team have made their way into the new Mead Senior Football Management, we'll talk about Colin O'Rourke in a little bit, Eamon Murray has decided to to step down after six years in charge. Uh, there's plenty about Ronaldo uh, starting off in the back of the sun. Ron deadline uh, that Manchester United want his future sorted by early next week, and it's still unclear if Cristiano Ronaldo is going to be remaining at Manchester United. Uh, Duncan Castle's piece that went up overnight, particularly on the Times website, is particularly interesting, which we'll have a look at now in a moment. Uh, Martial deal is coming. Anthony Martial, who's had a decent preseason for Manchester United, looks like he's going to get a fresh contract. He was out of contract at the end of the current campaign was on loan at Sevilla last year but it looks like the French striker is going to stay Uh, plenty around the deadline window on the back of the star as well Anthony is striking for move the comment made by the Brazilian winger who has now had a bit of 90 million turned down by Ajax from Manchester United uh, to potentially sign the 22 year old he is now training away with their U teams and has not been involved with Ajax the last two weekends and he has pleaded with the club to let him go Wesley Fofana pretty much confirmed this move on Twitter last night that he is on the way to Chelsea a fee of around 7 million pounds. He was not involved with Leicester when they played against Chelsea yesterday and effectively he's been pushing for a move for the last couple of weeks as well. Nine of fire is Liverpool on the back of the Sunday World today. Pat Spillane is also picking his Championship 15, his All-Star selection ahead of the All-Stars themselves. And we have got Eric's three idols are facing Old Trafford exit. That is Paul McGrath's piece on Manchester United today. Lots of United riding on the back of their two wins during the week against Liverpool and then uh, their victory yesterday at Southampton. And that is Paul McGrath saying there's uh, some key players that have been dropped, namely Harry Maguire, Cristiano Ronaldo and Luke Shaw probably have little future at the club now that Eric Ten Hag has decided that they're not part of his plans. The Sunday Mirror, Anthony KO to force deal to United again, same story. Anthony wants to go to Manchester United. Plenty of coverage of Liverpool putting nine past Bournemouth and we've got Fafana in at bridge for 75 million and Royal Whale over boss is Vincent Whelan's piece again on the change with the Mead Ladies footballers, the current All-Ireland champions. The Sunday Independent today, Liverpool on cloud nine is the pun that they've used on Liverpool's victory. Uh, whirlwind first half sees Anfield side on the way to record equaling victory and they've got the great debate which we'll be talking about which is both Colm Colm, uh, O'Rourke even and Joe Brawley Uh, Colm O'Rourke now the manager of the Mead footballers so he's got skin in the game when it comes to changes in Gaelic football Uh, Joe Brawley has outlined in more detail the changes that he would like to see to make Gaelic football more exciting and on the back page of the Sunday Independent today 
and it's a theme across many of the papers lots of coverage ahead of Thursday's Crunch World Cup qualifier for the Republic of Ireland women's team uh, where they take on Finland effectively a win would send them into the playoffs for the World Cup in New Zealand uh, David Walsh on the back of the Sunday Times today is writing about Live Golf Dermot Gleeson also writing about this in the Sunday Independent today he's saying that we're all losing out by what's happened with Live Golf that if you get to a situation where the signing on fees are worth more than the tournament prizes themselves what is the motivation for some of the world's best players when they go to play in Live Golf and again Cloud9 is used on the Sunday Times today and Haaland's 19 minute hat-trick saved City uh, they were 2-0 down against Crystal Palace before coming back and also on the Sunday Times today as well uh, Michael Foley who's also been writing about Kevin McStay Munster to host South Africa at Porky Cueve it opens the door potentially for Munster's games in the Heineken Champions Cup perhaps some of the bigger profile games being played at the Cork venue as well and then finally at the back of the Irish Mail on Sunday uh, come out swinging there's uh, Philip Quinn's piece around Shane Lowry who narrowly missed out on going to the Tour Championship despite the fact that Will Zalatoris had to pull out they went with a field of 29 as opposed to letting number 31 in Lowry to take part and basically the European Tour is at a crossroads because of Live Golf and we've got Mark Gallagher's piece, FAI yet to begin talks over Vera Pau deal. Vera Pau was speaking to the media earlier this week and her embargoed comments for the Sunday papers have made most of the papers today as well. So delighted to say we've got uh, Colin Keyes with us on Skype. Colin, how are you getting on? Hi, Will. How are you? I'm good. We've got Gavin Cooney here as well. How are you, Gav? Morning, morning. I'm very um, well, yeah. Cheers. Plenty to look at. Colin, you mentioned the back page of the Times today and David Walsh's piece which is here and just wanted to read a couple of quotes from it so the sub-headline is when rank and file pros are handed multi-million deals just to tee off it's clear who golf's big winners are it's not the live tour it's not fans or diminishing TV audiences and he makes the point that he was watching the end of the Czech Masters last week and the importance to a player to get their win on tour and what it can mean to them uh, with the significance of it compared to watching Charles Schwartzel and Henrik Stenson with their victories recently on Live Tour is making the point that they were, quote, calm and understated, so much so, I wondered if their contracts with Live meant that the prize money was offset against their signing on fees. The point here is, when golfers get multi-million dollar contracts just to tee it up, we lose, and though enriched, they too lose as well. If we don't need a win why would we want to watch them? Which I think is a very reasonable point, that for those who go to live and have signed the contracts, and because of the fact that it's a, an invitation field, essentially, so you're not playing to stay as part of a tour card, in basically by teeing it up, you're being very, very well paid, so it's less significant than if you were to win, like the players who were chasing a victory on the cheque, who were trying to make sure they had a tour card for three years, and maybe that money means a remarkable amount to them, that maybe this sums up a certain amount of the hollowness about live golfer. Very much so. Uh, obviously, the essence of sport, it boils down to the very essence of sport, and that is uh, competitiveness and jeopardy. There is there is no jeopardy in, in live golf. You are guaranteed you are guaranteed your money week after week. Um, now, obviously, I think the more players that join, and I think more players will join because of the money, more competitive element will probably come into it when they establish a more solid base, and I think that will happen, although obviously... PGA Tour on foot of the meeting that took place, uh, initiated by Tiger and Rory McIlroy last week. Uh, that's obviously going to lead to change and it's going to be more more pronounced, the tour around the better players. So obviously that's, that's an attraction in itself. And it is a little nudge towards the live golf model, but it's it's hard to really fathom how, and this that piece in the back page really, it does capture it among a lot of others and obviously a lot of other 
Uh, a lot of other journalists have written this, but it does capture the essence of the the absence of jeopardy. There must be there must be a risk factor for every sports competitor that goes out there, that goes out into the arena or into the field. Uh, that losing must have some consequence, and I suppose it's it's on a par with the the Super League last year that there was. There was no jeopardy for the top six English teams that were going to be there every year. Qualification didn't matter. Qualification or, or promotion, relegation, all of these things have to matter. You you have to lose your tour card. You have to have that jeopardy or that threat of losing your tour card for the for the lower ranked players. Obviously, you have to, you know, the rankings obviously qualify you for the bigger for the bigger tournaments, the majors. Um, uh, obviously, with the Tour Championship as it's uh, and the FedEx Cup as it's currently constituted, there are there are consequences for for not qualifying qualifying for all of this. Whereas with Live, it's just a straight bat. You go, you pick up your check, you play, you play in those teams with those awful names, <laughs> uh, and uh, you leave, and that's that's basically it. And there's the 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 absence of the absence of threat or jeopardy, just. Just I, I can't see I can't see how any spectators uh, or even a TV audience would be engaged by this. Where is the where is the hook for the audience for for any of us? Well, it's a three day event over a weekend, but you know Sunday night golf is huge. People sitting in to watch the closing stages of a PGA Tour Championship on a Sunday night or a major. It's a captivating it's a captivated audience. Uh, can you imagine getting around the screen to watch a live golf finale? like that where there's where there's really nothing at stake I, I just i just can't see it i think obviously it's a money factor uh clearly it's a money factor maybe it will evolve i do think it will evolve in time obviously when they when they when they build that up but as a model for the spectator to be engaged for the tv uh for the tv audience to be engaged it, it just isn't there and sport in its very essence i don't think it is yeah, Gavin, I watched the first Live Golf event, the one just outside London, flicked on YouTube just to see what it was going to be like. Mm. Um, it didn't capture my attention. And for one reason, we talked about this during the week when you know, all of these changes were being announced by the PGA Tour and potentially you have to be locked in for 20 different tournaments next season. And they're even looking at shorter forms of golf. And you've got Tiger and Rory putting up virtual golf, which could potentially extend Tiger's career because he could stand in the stadium and play against the simulator. And all this was coming out at the one time. And I was thinking the one strongest thing that the European Tour and the PGA Tour have right now is actually tradition. Mm. This idea that you go out there, you play across four rounds, you play in these tournaments which have got extended history and are important because they've been part of the PGA Tour for so long. Mm. I think that prestige is actually the attract for golf fans who love their golf. I'm not even sure if these new formats and ideas are actually going to attract in new fans. Yeah, I mean, the, the theory is to grow the game. That's absolutely, it's absolutely nonsense, lack of it. Uh, no, I, I, like, I just echo what, uh, what Colm says. I mean, it's about competition. I mean, great that the players make loads of money as a byproduct of their competition, but we're not tuning tuning in really to see who picks up the biggest check. I mean, I'm having a ho- I don't have a whole lot of interest in the Tour Championship this weekend. I have to say, it's I generally no like worries in contention. Watch, watch, watching the majors. Um, no, I just I just echo all um, all that's been said there. I mean, when people, you know, what attracted you to live golf? It, it reminds me of like, so Debbie, what first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? Like, I mean, it's clearly about the money and the fact that the players are now just nakedly admitting it's about the money is actually a progress than this you know uh, disingenuous nonsense about growing the 
the game and then trying to defend Saudi Arabia's human rights um, record, which is indefensible. Um, I haven't read too much about the PGA Tour's changes, but it sounds like, from what you just said, Tiger Woods has basically just invented a form of golf that he can continue to play. Is that what's just happened? That's one of them. So that's so basically a whole load of information came out the one day. On, yeah. I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday. So the PGA Tour were looking at potentially having, you know, they could maybe incorporate shotgun starts. They could maybe potentially go for shorter forms. And this is almost like a direct kickback to live. So it's like, if you guys find this entertaining, maybe we can provide this too. Mm. And also they want to guarantee that their players are available for more tournaments throughout the season. And that even caught John Ram out a little bit at Eastlake yesterday when he was questioned about it. He was like, I have to play 20 tournaments next year and I have to qualify for the Ryder Cup. So I'm going to be in Europe quite a bit and I've only played 17 this year. So there's still a bit to be ironed out in that regard. But the virtual golf, you may well have seen the Twitter video which went up, which is in a very early concept stage. And I'm sure they've 18 months to get this right. They can probably make it a lot better. But the idea would be the golfers could go and play effectively a showdown inside a stadium. The stadium looked a lot like uh, one of the NFL stadiums where you can put a lot of graphics and uh, augmented reality all over Mm. the place as well. And the idea would be Tiger Woods wouldn't have to climb the hills of Augusta National anymore. He could play the Masters in a stadium against the simulator and it would all be nice and fancy and razzmatazz and basically you've got Rory McIlroy Tiger Woods two of the biggest stars of the game who'd be behind this Cool Well I, I'd have to think more about it Initially I hate that idea I, 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 that, that is absolutely no attraction to me whatsoever um, One thing I, did have they done anything for you know like I mean the Live Golf Tour has been packed out you know there's obviously a few recognisable names that took crazy money I then looked down at the other names and there's a whole lot of names I've never seen in my life. Like and there's Kepka's brother. Yeah, and look, guys who are below the breadline on the European Tour and the PGA Tour um, who have been paid a lot of money to be effectively meet in the room, you know, for this, uh, to, you know, justify this, it's a, calling itself a tour. Have the PGA done anything for those guys? Are there, is there going to be a better trickle down of money? Because They found that, some money down the back of the couch. Yeah. So there's more guaranteed money for the PGA Tour over the coming seasons. Yeah. Remarkable how when Liv were able to increase the pot that PGA went you know what there's actually is a few quid yeah and that, Phil, Mix, Phil Mixon just, see that just in there, like, there was, wasn't there some mention wasn't there some mention that there were a private equity that JP McManus and Dermot Desmond's of this this uh, world would be able to invest in a new in a new look PGA tour which would increase <clears throat> obviously increase the finances around it but obviously they'd have to start paying tax they would no longer uh, they under under american law they would have to start paying tax once they allowed private investors uh, to come in and take a take a share in it so that was also uh, uh mooted at the meeting last week as well in addition to what you say the stadium golf which is which is quite bizarre really I, 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 maybe maybe in america something like that will take take off uh and it will keep tiger at the at the forefront but uh pro- Private equity was uh, was was one of the things, one of the factors that was going to increase the money, and obviously there would be trickle down uh, in that respect. Colm, I guarantee if Phil Mickelson will make the point, if that comes to pass, and say the poorest ten percent of players on the PGA Tour end up getting more cash into their pockets, he will claim that him going to live golf has enabled this. Has has justified it very much so, and there was a lot of that. Uh, I noticed some of the some of the comments even from Lee Westwood during the week when the, when the details, uh, when the projections for the future of the PGA Tour came out. Uh, um, Lee Westwood was one of those who mentioned, well, you know, they're they're following us essentially. They're 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 mirroring us now and what we're doing. So there is a bit of uh, there is a bit of that with the live golfers who have moved on. In that well, we're justified in some way that they're actually following us now. So, 
somewhere somewhere up the line I do think there will be there will be um a conformity here. Uh, I think Liv will get stronger up to a point. Uh but unless that competitiveness comes into it, um I couldn't see it. Um I couldn't see any engagement in it. And I'm how long did the Saudis hang around for something like this? Is it forever? I doubt it. And also for the effect in the European tour, if people want to check it out today, Philip Quinn has got a piece in the mail as well, talking about the fact that the European tour is very much caught in the crosshairs here because a lot of the top European players have been targeted and have now gone to live golf and their schedule may well have to move around. And even just from a purely Irish perspective, to look at it through that prism, potentially Greg Norman could be bringing live golf to Donald Trump's course in County Clare the week before the Irish Open would take place in two years' time. So maybe there's going to be a collision course directly uh, between the European Tour and Live Golf in that regard. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Um, we're looking at the GA manager merry-go-round as well. There's a few pieces that are well worth checking out today. Um, the Sun outlining very nicely on pages 38 and 39 uh, in the paper today the managerial vacancies that are still there. Uh, the latest one that's been filled, uh, Paddy Christie has gone to uh, Gavin's home county of Longford. Uh, he's set to be uh, ratified at next month's county board meeting, leaving the Tipperary management set up to go there. Um, there's still a few to be filled, some high-profile ones uh, that haven't been quite filled yet, like Donegal and Monin. It's all outlined there. Also, we've got a piece today on from Michael Clifford, which is on page 60 of the Mail on Sunday, who's looking, column at the fact that being a pundit on the Sunday game is no bad thing if you want to get back into management. It's proved to be quite a useful shop window, particularly in this window for managerial appointments. Yeah, well, I suppose there's a couple of ways of looking, looking at this. And I note Michael's piece here I'm just looking at. Um, it's, were they pundits first? and our managers first uh, and they fall into two categories i think the two centrally that that i would really deem as predominantly pundits obviously colin o'rourke was uh he's been involved with the sunday game team for probably 30 years at this stage uh, he was certainly there as a player in 1991 so he has very much in terms of intercounty, he's very much been pundit first and obviously uh at almost 65 years of age, this is his first inter-county senior management job. And also Kevin McStay has been with the Sunday game a long, long time. Now, obviously, Kevin was uh, involved with Mayo as a team trainer in 1995 and did go for the job after that. But uh, he was essentially uh, involved with clubs around Roscommon and indeed Mayo uh, for much of his time. But predominantly, we know the two of them as Sunday game pundits, whereas the rest that Michael mentions, you could say, you could say their managers are their their managers almost almost first first really, and uh, incidentally, uh, pundits after that. So I, I would classify them in two categories. But there is has been quite a movement from from the couch this year uh, back onto the sideline. Uh, he mentions Tom Tomas O'Shea here, who was uh, obviously went last year to Offaly, having spent four or five years perhaps uh, on this in the Sunday game studio and in the commentary box. Uh, he he went to Offaly and has now gone to the Kerry under twenties. Um, so there has been quite a shift, but predominantly Colin O'Rourke and Kevin McStay are the two main ones because they they have been they have been really central figures uh, in the coverage over the last two and in Colin's case three decades. So. Um, yeah, Michael Clifford uh, lists 10 here who you could all say 
uh, is pretty much is of course it's all accurate. It's it's all there. He mentions Eamon Cregan. Eamon Cregan was a very very uh, common uh, hurling pundit back in the uh, back in the nineteen nineties, especially, and of course Gerlach Nan and Liam Sheedy. But I would have classified them all as managers first and consequently pundits. So there probably is a distinction there. But certainly for O'Rourke and McStay to to make that move, I think it's brave on both behalves. There's no guarantee for either for success. Uh, Kevin is obviously has a better chance with Mayo. Colin O'Rourke has taken on me the time when you know there is there's absolutely no guarantee of of, of any progress really. So uh, it's a little bit of a shot in the dark for him. Whereas obviously Mayo are a lot closer to the top and are likely Connacht winners at any stage over the next over the four years that he will be there to give him some platform. Whereas I would very much doubt Mead will even win a provincial title. Uh, in the time that Colin will be there because of obviously Dublin's continuing dominance. So they're, uh, they're, they're, they're in contrast uh, in, in some ways, but I do think Kevin McStay obviously would be better placed. I want to ask both of you about um, Mick Foley's piece about Kevin McStay and Mayo in a second, but Gavin, did I see in the corner of my eye, was that you moving the newspaper or was that you celebrating the fact that Paddy Christie is now the Longford boss? I'll say, I'll say moving the newspaper, <laughs> given I'm, a, given I'm an independ- so independent, yeah. uh, independent journalist here. But happy with the appointment? Yeah, I'm sure I am. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I don't follow Gaelic football very closely. I have to say, um, through work. But uh, yeah, it looks a, it looks a good appointment by Longford, and uh, this guy is seemingly has got a very good track record. There you go. He was just moving the newspaper, these, folks. Uh, these, these jobs are these jobs are really really difficult to fill for certain for certain counties. And you're mentioning Kevin McStay. You're about to talk to Kevin McStay about Kevin McStay and Michael Foley's piece in the Sunday Times. At that level, at that level, it's probably a lot easier to get a manager. And if you just look at the interest that was in the Mayo management job, uh, four candidates all stacked with really strong backroom teams, among them actually Paddy Christie, the new Longford manager who was part of Declan Shaw's team. But if you look at the level of candidacy that was there for Mayo uh, in terms of backroom, it was really impressive. Whereas a number of counties are really, really struggling uh, to fill these vacancies. And there's pressure on officials even to get some people to pick up a phone and answer them, to to reject them or to to push them back in, in, in ways. That's, that's even a challenge for some counties. There is a very, very small pool of good coaches. And these are difficult jobs. And I would certainly detect that vacancies at a certain level are becoming increasingly, increasingly difficult to fill. There are there are still a number outstanding. I think I think Monaghan will be filled very, very soon. If if not today, well then tomorrow I would imagine that appointment will be completed. But if you go to if you go to Wexford, you know, their their manager is, uh, has uh, Shane Roach stepped down some some weeks ago. If you look at Longford and Down last year, it took them until November. I think November to fill uh, their vacancies, having both managers having vacated uh, by memory. Certainly, James, uh, certainly Paddy Talley quit last uh, June, and it took until November at least for James McCartan uh, for that vacancy to be filled. Now, obviously, Down and Longford have gone about their business much much quicker this time, uh, but other counties will be will be left struggling to fill those vacancies into September and October, I would think, because there isn't a huge pool out there to do them. Yeah, Colm, I was just thinking when it comes to that, even when it goes to Longford, we had Billy O'Loughlin on with us on OTB AM uh, before he left uh, his position in Longford. And he was making that very point that if you go into a county whereby, and even Wexford will be a similar case, where 
it's almost like the Leinster Championship feels like it's a rung way too high to try and get over. So therefore, you're hoping to get a win or a good draw in Leinster, but realistically, you're probably looking at the Talton if you're a Division 3 or Division 4 team. Even just from a motivation point of view for a manager coming in, that's a difficult ask from the outset. It is, but the uh, the provincial championships will be a little bit more diminished next year because they'll be run off even quicker than what they're being run off at present. They have to be. They have to be condensed even more. So there'll be, very, there'll be little gaps between that. I think it'll be week on week when the schedule appears. It'll be week on week almost and maybe a two-week break to the final uh, before the uh, Sam Maguire round robin and the, uh, the Taljian Cup round robin kicks in. And that's really where the action will be for uh, at both levels. So I think there will be renewed focus next year for those ty- for those teams on the Taljian Cup. Obviously, League progress is a big thing for for counties at that level and getting up the divisions there. But I do think there'll be renewed focus on the Tolchin Cup. Um, I think Westmead's win and the way they celebrated and the way they embraced it uh, is a real pointer as to what will happen in the in, certainly in the short term future around the Tolchin Cup. It's not going to be a repeat business. I don't think you get the same enthusiasm for it if Westmead were to drop back down in a couple of years' time and go and win it. I don't think it would be the same. But for certain counties, I do think it is a genuine path now and a genuine North Star for them uh, to go and to go and pursue because uh, the provincial championships are really, really only a stepping stone now, much more so than they have been at any stage. And I think that will become uh, quite apparent next year with the scheduling and the emphasis and the priority that the that the round robin in both Taljan Cup and Sam Maguire uh, will will have. Yeah, Westmead won those uh, teams now looking for a manager as of yesterday with Jack Cooney uh, mm. stepping down for a new role with the GA as well. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Gavin, we want to have a look at Michael Foley's piece then. He's looking at Kevin McStay, the new management team, what they could potentially achieve. Page 12 of the Sunday Times today, it's the new messiah is the headline we have here. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of the line from Life of Brian, he's not the messiah because I've known, I've, I've, I've followed a few of them in my time. Um, really, it's interesting stuff. I mean, first of all, I, f- I just found a line by by Rob Murphy very funny when like Mick makes the point that with such granular local coverage across nearly two months of this race to become Mayo manager are the media also fe- feeding the beast and Rob says I think it helps keep it from spiralling out of control people can't stop thinking about this therapists will tell you it's better to talk which is a lovely little insight into, into the importance of um, Mayo football in the county of Mayo um, and then what I've what is touched on here it's not really it's it's a job I suppose McStay has is to um, is to reconnect the team and and the supporters because maybe it, maybe it was slightly patronising the way Mayo fans were talked about it at times along um, in that journey um, under James Horn and then Stephen Rochford uh, and Holmes and Canelli as well um, just how how loyal they were and how loud they were and what great supporters they were and it seems to have really fractured in uh, in the aftermath of that of that defeat to uh, to Tyrone, I think there's a line in here about uh, there was a sense that that uh, All Ireland final uh, in 2021 was was being served up for them on a silver platter and they missed it and there seems to be you know that there was a real kind of sourness after that. So I was I was just interested to 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 see that you know um, you know I always felt like you know people would talk about in those years when Mayo were you know building heartbreak upon heartbreak like how tough it must be to be a Mayo fan but honestly I think it was better to be a Mayo fan 
than you know the fan of 30 other counties in the country like the journey is is really what it's about and the journeys were always really epic they make the point here god there's 15,000 in Ennis for a qualifier against Clare so if McStay can can get um, can get that going um, I think Mayo could be a force to be reckoned with again and it's interesting just looking and Colin will have a much better insight into this than me but just looking at the quality of his uh, coaching ticket he's got great coaches there like Donny Buckley Liam McHale but he's got managers there like Stephen Rochford is a manager Shane Mulligan is a manager so it's just like he's almost like managing the managers and he's just like you know, um, he's almost like this McStay will be almost like a figurehead at the top of all this McStay is a superb communicator so from that point of view I think he's a great he's a great choice for the role um, whether may have the, have the squad of the players uh, to compete next year or, or at any point under McStay's uh, leadership I don't know I mean I'd guess that they would because the standard isn't what it was but I'll, I'll defer to Colm on, on, on those um, questions because he, he's much better placed to answer than me but um I really, like, I really like McStay. I, I really hope it's successful for him um, and, and really can't wait to see how it goes. Yeah, Colm, in many ways, McStay is the figurehead of a huge management team here. And increasingly, we saw the piece last weekend about Kerry's management team and the amount of experts that they brought in and what's required. And the stockpiling which is required in this Cold War at the very top of Gaelic football in particular, and it's, it's true of hurling as well when you look at the strength particularly of Limerick's backroom team, it now becomes much more than just a manager who picks a few selectors and goes out and trains the team. This is now, as we saw in this Mayo situation, you need an elite backroom team if you're going to compete. Well, there's five mentioned on the on the ticket and there was there's five been in the public domain for some time, and that's Kevin and Stephen Rochford, Liam McHale, Donny Buckley and Damien Mulligan. They're the, they're the five and they obviously bring a lot of uh, gravitas and experience. Stephen Rochford and Donny Buckley were there in between 2016 and 2018 and and really no manager no male manager went closer obviously John Mohan uh, matched in 1996 the draw and replay against Meath but Stephen Rochford in two years lost All-Ireland Finals as a manager as Mayo did by a point to Dublin in the midst of Dublin's six in a row run so um, that's how close he brought them it, it, it fell away badly then in 2018 and it, it ended badly enough for Stephen uh, at the end of 2018 just the way that uh, his, his his year extension so for him to come back in uh, four, four years later to come back in and be willing to come back in I think it's I think there's good dynamic there. I think Kevin, Gavin mentions Kevin being a good communicator. He's all of that. He's a very, very good communicator. Um, and he'll bring great positivity to Mayo, which I think was lacking in the last year. I think since it was John Gunnigan from the Mayo blog, GA blog, mentioned it, that, and Gavin has referenced that, since since the All-Ireland final last year, the atmosphere has been quite toxic. It lifted briefly during the league, but it was back around the league final, that hammering by Kerry really really hurt Mayo more than anyone probably thought, including themselves. And they struggled against Galway for a long time until they, and they were always really just chasing it. They were always chasing it. And injuries haven't helped them. Obviously to be without Tommy Conroy this year, flying inside forward and Ryan O'Donoghue. So a um, few decisions for Kevin to make around key players, obviously uh, in, in, in the coming weeks and months, but all of those, in, you know that that's micro. The macro is he's he's very very positive, and he's already said in the interview he did with Sean Moran in the Irish Times, you know that Mayo Mayo will be relevant, and they will be with that inside forward line if they can get Killian O'Connor, Ryan O'Donoghue, and Tommy Connery back on the field together at the same time as they were in 2020 when they reached the All of All Ireland final. I think that they will uh, 
you know, they'll take a positive step forward. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that up to a level. They may still be behind Kerry Dublin and even Tyrone, even a renewed Tyrone that just be tucked in behind them. But they, they, they have a strong chance again. I mean that this year, this year for sure, dip. But injuries and everything that really could go wrong for them did go wrong for them. But you mentioned the scale of the backroom teams, and uh, that's that's obviously a constant now. I mean, uh, Kevin has appointed a logistics manager, another intercounty manager, Sean Finnegan, his good friend, his former army colleague, uh, who has been Kildare. Uh, ladies football manager haven't been Westmead football manager ladies football manager uh, he's the logistics manager for this team and Liam Horan a former former colleague of mine Irish independent GA correspondent he's head of communications and strategy or something like that so so they're already involved so that's you're, you're up to seven straight away and when you go to when you go to kitmen physios masseurs team doctors performance analysis analysis statisticians a lot of a lot of teams now will have at least two statisticians possibly four some would go up to even four for that um you're talking about a team of between 20 and 24 is probably average at this stage for a team at that level i remember one time documenting davy fitzgerald's team in clare and it was probably up to 28 now davy brings uh, Davy brings has specific roles, which are minor roles for uh, for uh, certain individuals within within a team framework like that. But it can go up to twenty eight in in certain cases. But generally twenty to twenty four, and that's that's management in its in its own right for someone like Kevin, and that's the element that he will manage and obviously leave the coaches. And he has four very well recognised coaches there. And I'm quite sure he will delegate that to them and let them get on with it. And I'd say Stephen Rochford and Donny Buckley. You must remember, Donny Buckley, this is his fourth different Mayo management team to work with, which is quite incredible for a Kerryman. I mean, it's it's not only is it a great obsession for for the people of Mayo, it's now become a great obsession for this particular Kerryman because he spent the last two years in Monaghan and now he's back over to to Mayo for, for a fourth stint uh, with a different manager. Colm, I'll give you a first shout on the two former Sunday Game Now pundits in Colm O'Rourke and Joe Brawley, who were spread across two pages in the uh, Sunday Independent on page 14 and 15 of the paper, uh, both looking yeah. at potential changes to Gaelic football, and Central Council was meeting yesterday, and I believe uh, their rules committee are going to often have a look at some ideas now at this stage. But um, Joe Brawley has, firstly, expanded upon his ideas from last week. So I just want to give uh, listeners and viewers an idea of the four changes he's talking about here. Uh, the goalkeeper would not be allowed to take a pass from an outfield player. The penalty would be a free kick, so you can't go backwards to your goalkeeper. At adult level, the kick out must be kicked from the 13-metre line and must go beyond the 45. A penalty would be a 20-metre free kick against you. Once the ball has gone over the halfway line, it cannot then go back over the line in that attack. The penalty again would be a 20-metre free kick. And the same punishment for zonal defending will be prohibited inside the 40-metre exclusion zone. So the idea here under Joe Brawley would be fairly radical, basically cutting down ideas where you know, the flow may well end up with a team trying to sit in possession and defend. And then similarly, Colm O'Rourke is perhaps a little bit less radical and talking about some ideas to try and just keep the game moving. So obviously this is going to become a bit of a talking point over the next while, Colm, and the two lads have had their say here today. Yeah, so they've gone. It's not really a head-to-head debate, but they are debating the same, the same, uh, the same uh, team, uh, and coming up with quite contradictory um, solutions. I, I would think, because whereas 
Colin just is adamant there should be a restriction on hand passes. And if you remember three years ago, uh, there were efforts to introduce during the uh, preliminary competitions. There were efforts to to restrict the hand pass to four, but uh, strong lobbying by the GPA, the Gaelic Players Association, um, obviously were successful in in knock, knocking that out before the start of the league. Uh, so, so that has been experimented before. Obviously, with rules, there's the theoretical side of it and the practical side of it. I remember during that more recent experimental phase, the advanced mark uh, originally, in the very, very early stages of it, and this was just trialed through college games, and actually Colm references that in his piece, that his school, St. Patrick's Classical School team, were used as guinea pigs before they even tabled them as motions to change. The advanced mark was uh, the advanced mark. You must make the catch inside the 20 meter line, which would be the ideal scenario uh, for the advanced mark, because obviously a lot of players will cheat in certain ways and that the lateral pass will be kicked to someone in space. They'll catch it on the chest, free shot. So that side of it, that side of the advanced mark has not worked out, whereas David Clifford's magnificent catch in the All-Ireland final and mark from that, well, that was such a good catch. Maybe it deserved a free shot. So very, very, the jury is very, very much out on the advanced mark. I think it's probably tilting towards its its abolition at this stage, I would imagine, even though it has, it seems, encouraged encouraged kicking. But I was mentioning that in, in the trial during the college games, it came very quickly apparent to referees that they weren't able to adjudicate as to whether those kicks were inside the 20-meter line. And that's why it was abandoned. And I feel that while Joe's uh, proposals here are very well thought out, he's clearly given a lot of thought to this, and that must be recognised at first. How will they play out in practice? Because he mentions the goalkeeper, you know, uh, the, the goalkeeper must kick the ball out from thirteen meter, from the 13-metre line and it must go to the 45-metre line. Well, would that not encourage all of the opponents to get back into that zone where they think the kick is going to be? Uh, and that's going to make it even more congested. See, with the range that keepers have to kick to the sidelines and kick short, uh, it really it does open up the pitch. Now, I know the consequences for that are a slow build-up and all that, but you would see huge congestion in that area, especially with his proposal of the exclusion zone. So nobody can be hanging around in there either. So it's going to make it, uh, obviously, in isolation. It, it, that, could make it, that could make it difficult. How would it be? The one thing the GA would look at and will always look at uh, in terms of rules proposals is, Okay, at inter-county level, but how would they play out at club level? That's what—that's the real gauge of all of that. And they never want to deviate the rules or change the rules for for either game because that's suggesting then that there's a split between the two games, and that's something that they would really, really want to avoid. So having an exclusion zone with policed by the two sideline officials. Well, there's many a club game where there aren't two sideline officials. And or there are people from the clubs involved, Colin, who may well be keeping yeah. the sideline. And good luck yeah. with them judging exactly. whether someone is so standing in the right they zone going to, are those Are those people, Will, are they, going to, uh, are they going to police an exclusion zone? They're barely going to get the sidelines right, which is their primary function. And that's that, that can sometimes be harder if anyone who has ever, ever done a sideline. It can be sometimes in the spur of the moment. No more than umpiring. It'd be difficult, actually, to catch. It's not as straightforward when you're down there on the sideline as you might think. So having uh, that, you, you must road test this at club level. And I, where I see it falling down straight away is manpower. You don't, you will not have the officials uh, to to police this. So while it might work 
and it could work. I don't know. I'd love to see it play out in some way under a sustained trial period. Uh, the test is at club level, uh, and I think the GA will not want to split rules, have one new set of rules for inter-county and another for club, and that's where I see see the issue here. But, you know, it's a worthwhile debate because while the year was good, uh, and certainly when the season got to Croke Park, uh, the games were very, m- m- for the most part, were very entertaining. There are large spells of slow, ponderous build-up that disengages the crowd quite a bit. And that is the modern game and mixed in with some brilliance. And I think the Armagh go again captured both sides brilliantly. There was a lot of slow, ponderous build-up because teams were able to get numbers back and all of that. But there was enough great football and exciting moments to really bring that to life, that game. And and it really stands out as the game of the year this year. Um that's really the way the game is gone. And uh, I'm not so sure either proposal. Colm is suggesting hand passes. As I said, that was ditched. Uh, that was ditched uh, three, four years ago, three years ago at this stage. So he's not suggesting uh, tinkering of the rules at county level. It, it's not something I consider wise. So there's a little bit of a conservative approach crept in. Maybe that's his, since his appointment as, uh, as the Mead manager. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Gavin, from build-up on a Gaelic Games pitch to build-up to this uh, big qualifier for the Republic of Ireland women's team, which has got quite a bit of coverage this Sunday. I was kind of expecting this more to kick into gear Mm. later in the week. Maybe that's partly because of Vera Powell speaking on Friday morning and therefore the Sundays have picked up on her quotes a little bit, her contract situation, some of the comments she's had about the European qualifiers' future as well. Is that why we've got as much coverage of the women's team today? That and also the fact that it's a huge game. Mm. I mean, if the men's team were playing a, a playoff or a playoff, which this game against Finland on Thursday effectively is, we would have this level of courage, coverage and we wouldn't really bat an eyelid at it. So uh, it's just a, a reflection of uh, the team's growing importance to the country and the importance of the game itself. It's, it's, it's absolutely massive. I mean, the Ireland have never been to... Um, major playoff. Finals. Never been to a major finals uh, before, uh, and they can secure a playoff now. Like it's 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 an unbelievably complex process. Like I mean, it's it's more it's more difficult to understand than a Kerry County Championship like this qualifying for the playoff for the World Cup. And I still don't have it clear in my head. To be quite honest with you, so I won't I get into it now. If but you have a look at Eamon Sweeney's piece on the back page of the Sunday Independent, he tries to break it down. And anything that takes an entire column just to explain the potential for the amount of teams who are involved, where teams are ranked at this point in second place, what may happen with playoffs into playoffs, you can see the complexity Mm. of trying to get to New Zealand from that. But in many ways, the Irish equation is simple, though. Having got the great result in Finland previously, it's effectively win. And at least then you can worry about the permutations of the actual playoffs after that. Yeah, beat Finland and they're guaranteed a playoff, which was the target. That was success. They were never going to catch Sweden at the top of the group. Sweden, superb team. I think they were world number one at the start of the group. Obviously, not the best team in Europe anymore, as England have, have proven, and it, um, maybe France have proven as well, and Germany as well. But Ireland... This is the this is the aim. They made a bit of a hames. They should have done better in the qualifying for the Euros that we just saw in England this summer. They made a bit of a hames of it toward the end, somehow losing to Ukraine like a terrible OG and I didn't miss a penalty as well. So, penalty, yeah. so this is this is their chance to put it right, and they've been very, very good in this group so far. I mean the to beat Finland away was a superb result. To draw away to Sweden 
was an even better result. So they're in a really good position coming into this this game. Uh, Finland had a horrendous Euros. They lost all their three games to the point where they've sacked their manager. Um, so you could argue that they're not in a great place coming in, but there may be some kind of new manager effect. And Finland, although there may be mental scars from the Euros, they at least have the physical conditioning of having played it. One thing that makes me a little bit worried about for Ireland's point of view is the fact that the Women's Super League in England hasn't started yet. So this game, like this is a huge game and it's happening in pre-season, which you would never see for the men's, men's game. I, mean, I remember last year, um, the triple header in Nations League games, Portugal, Azerbaijan and Serbia. And I remember one of the issues pinpointed when Ireland's performance dropped was the fact that the players had only really had two or three league games under their belt going into this. Ireland don't, few of the Irish players really do. I mean, the last competitive game they played was the Georgia qualifier, which they obviously won very easily because Georgia are a really poor team. So that's a bit of a concern. But, you know, Ireland have proven, I mean, they have genuinely world-class players in McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan. I think Heather Payne is on her way to that level. Um, they're gonna, they've are gonna. they sold out Tallis Stadium in about half an hour. And it's properly sold out this time as it well. Is, it it uh, is properly sold out, yeah. Um, and, you know, official, official Ireland's interest in the women's team is now such that they've had to find a bigger room for all the VIPs and the... Um, <laughs> and the hoi polloi going, uh, going along to this game. So, yeah, re- really excited about it and hopefully they can get over the line. So a win will guarantee them uh, a playoff and, and don't need to worry about the game against Slovakia uh, the following week. A draw will mean that they'll have to go and get something in Slovakia, which might be tricky. But, uh, you know, you should uh, they should back themselves. Colin, we've been here before when it comes to contract situations and Aidan Fitzmaurice is covering that today. We've also uh, got, I think it's very, very heavily covered by Mark Gallagher across two pieces in the Irish Mail on Sunday today as well that you know, Vera Pau is now getting to this position where it seems the Republic of Ireland team are in a really good place, particularly since the Australia friendly last year. They've had a good qualifier campaign and her contract is up in the air. It only runs through to the World Cup of next year. She says it's no distraction, but you would think that this will probably be talked about quite a bit, particularly if Ireland were to get into this playoff over the next while. Yeah, I just have Mark's piece in the Mail on Sunday open here. The FAI must powwow with Pow to secure <laughs> her future, and he makes a, a strong case to say that Pow has engendered that spirit. The FAI should do everything it can right now to ensure she continues her good work, irrespective of whether this team reached their major, their first major tournament or not. So he's suggesting even even if they don't beat Finland and somehow um, don't make these playoffs. And actually, you mentioned the playoffs there. I, I read Eamon Sweeney's piece, and then I read it again to try and understand the playoff connotations. I also read Mark Gallagher's other piece in the Mail on Sunday to try and get a handle on it. And I really can't because there's nine European qualifiers, three go through and then the other three play off. But there's other federations, other federations come into it at some stage, too. So I think a graph this week by some of the some of the nationals, some of the some of the daily titles, uh, maybe to put up a graph to see how it all works out. That that might work best to try and follow it. But with the contract negotiations, obviously, you'll never hear really what's going on in the background. And I'm quite sure there are talks uh, Vera Powell, obviously she's, she's not going to say we're in contract talks here, but I'm sure there has been some intimations. And, and if there's not, there should be uh, going on in the background. It's not something that really, uh, and I'd say, uh, w- I, w- I wouldn't think this would just leak out into the public just yet, unless there was a hitch in it. And then I think we'd know all about it because one side or the other would obviously be lobbying. But I would imagine, I would imagine the focus being on this game. And it has got substantial coverage uh, in, in the paper. Obviously, Eamon Sweeney has devoted his main piece as a scene setter uh, describing it. 
you know, it's the biggest match in the history of Irish women's soccer. Well, every match that the Irish women's team seem to play these days is the biggest match, and they're only going to get bigger, especially if they qualify for for playoffs to build up towards towards a potential World Cup final place. So it's an exciting time, and I know it actually that uh, how quickly Tala how quickly Tala sold out, and obviously you would think, well, maybe a move to the Aviva, but Katie McCabe made the point during the week, and that's referenced in the, in the pieces this week that really they don't want to go to. Uh, a half-empty Aviva. They think they get the crowd up to 24, 25, 30,000 maybe, uh, but uh, empty seats around the Aviva would take from the atmosphere who they feel really at home, really at home in Tala. But I think if they reach the World Cup finals, I think at that point with the profile of that and given what happened in the summer with the European Championships across the water, I think I think the profile of this game is really only soaring as it is across all ladies' team sports because we, we see obviously a focus on on Japan and the the women's rugby team, and in the Sunday Independent, there's a focus on the the uh, the 20 plus uh, GA players or ex GA players, as some of them are, uh, who are down playing uh, AFLW, um, and there's Sean McGoldrick is a piece outlining them, and all of a sudden there's over 20 there, and they're all playing prominent roles. So right across the board, uh, Nadine Doherty has a piece about keeping the keeping the foot on the gas, so to speak, in the Sunday Independent, about the huge gains that have been made in terms of profile uh, of women's sports and to, to keep the foot on the gas, to keep it going, that it's reached a point now where, and she mentioned this in the piece, that hashtags are no longer important. And I think that's a very, that's a very good line to think that people are actually uh, taking these games now and taking, say, next Thursday's game for what it is, a real chance to progress along the way to a major finals. And I think that it stands up on its own without any of the need for marketing or anything else. I think people will tune in to see how they get on. Gavin, I know Nadine's piece is one you wanted to have a look at today as well. Mm. A lot done more to do is basically the, the tenor of it. Um, I was interested just from a specific football point of view, um, and Colin just referenced it, is the success of the tournament, this is the, the Euros during the summer, a turning point whereby hashtags and slogans and the promotion of women's sport can be phased out. The prize money for the Euros was doubled from 2017 to 16 million euro. A welcome increase indeed, but laughable in comparison to the 371 million euro for the men's European Championships, plus the 200 million euro guaranteed to the clubs of the players' release of the tournament. So that's an enormous chasm. I do kind of wonder, uh, this is a broader question, um, and only one, one I pose slightly idly, is whether women's football will be better with its own governing body to focus just on that sport rather than relying on percentages of the of of the income primarily from the men's game. You're being slightly radical here at the time when everyone else is trying to integrate into the one umbrella. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, Colin, you're probably well-placed to, to talk about this, but obviously the, the LGFA are separate to the GAA. Like, has that, has that been, do you think, has that been a success for them? Uh, it it probably has, but I think the time has reached now, Gavin, for mergers between between all three bodies. Uh, that's obviously a priority now, even though it's the the trail has gone cold over the last six months since all the respective congresses signed up uh, to mergers. But I think I think at this stage, uh, I think at this stage they would be better. I think equality is so prevalent now and it's, it's, so, it's such an acceptance of it that I think uh, the LGFA and Camogie associations would be a very, very good fit into a, into what I, I would feel now is a very willing GAA to embrace all of this. And I think around venues, fixtures, 
uh, financing. Uh, you look at the disparity between LGFA players in terms of mileage and what the GA players get. You see that disparity of mileage. Now, obviously, there's a there's commercial reasons as much as anything is that the LGFA on their own do not generate enough to be able to support their players, whereas with crowds and sponsorships and everything like that, well, the GA can. Uh, and they can provide 65 cent per mile for their players where it's much, much less. And in some cases, not at all for the uh, LGFA, some of the LGFA and Camogie players. So that's there is disparity there. And I think with mergers, you would see uh, a vast improvement. You could see in the disimprovement for the GA players because obviously the pot is finite. Uh, so you could see it. it, it yeah. Uh, you could see mileage rates for players lowered, whereas obviously the Camogie and or the Camogie and ladies footballers it would increase to parity at that point. So I think there's lots of reasons why uh, the LGFA for the next 20 years and the Camogie Association would be better off at this point. Mm. Yeah, the clock up against us somewhat. So I just want to pick out a few other um, stories that we're not going to get a chance to talk about. I think are probably worth your time uh, this afternoon. Uh, in the athletics, you've got Shane McGrath, page 63 of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, something we talked about a lot with Carl Dennehy across the week, um, the importance of funding uh, some of the Irish athletics coaches who are doing it effectively for free at the moment. And in some cases, they had to pay to go to Munich to be with their athletes last week. He also speaks to Mark English on page 62, which is just beside that piece. And Mark English talking about the fact that he feels he's a strong athlete now than he was when he won his first European bronze back in 2014 uh, Neil O'Riordan has been speaking to Kira McGeehan on the back of her European silver medal and the build up to the Worlds next year as well as Paris 2024 and uh, it's interesting that Kira McGeehan and Mark English get a lot of coverage this week because it was something that was discussed by Kleena and by Kieran last week with Joe that actually there probably wasn't a huge amount of coverage on uh, the two Irish athletes that won medals and also I'd pick out as well Kevin Burns got a good piece in the Sun today on page 32 he's interviewed Russ Amber who is Alexander Usyk's cutman and they talk about the fight they talk about Alexander Usyk being a remarkable cruiserweight now a remarkable heavyweight but also there's great detail in there about what the Usyk camp thought about Anthony Joshua getting on the microphone after the fight in Jeddah and the strong feeling is that the Usyk camp didn't really mind and it seems Alexander Usyk actually felt that Anthony Joshua was complimenting him as opposed to stealing the moment last Saturday evening so they're very interesting pieces Colm my thanks uh, for joining us via Skype Thank you, Will. And Gavin Cooney as well. It's been a great chat over the last while. Plenty to look at in the papers today. If you've missed any of it, you can watch it back in video form on our YouTube, on Off The Ball, and also on the podcast section on the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.